And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not, saying, for you're not setting your mind on things of God, but of things of man. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. <clears throat> for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words is in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. All right, thank you for reading that. I know it was a long one for you. Uh, it over, this overlaps with Pastor Nate's message from two weeks ago, and so that's where we'll pick it up. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And as you're doing that, let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word, to come to know you and your son in a deeper and more intimate way. Thank you that your word is truth and that from it we can know your mind. We can know your heart. We can know your commands, how we should obey you. And so we ask that you would help us this morning. Use your spirit, use your word to guide us to become more and more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, Pastor Nate brought us to the watershed moment in the book of Mark. And that is Peter's confession uh, of Jesus as the Messiah. So when Jesus asks, who do you, who do you say I am? It, Peter has already explained to all these other people, think that you're one of these four other prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers, and he correctly answers, and he says, you are the Messiah. That's what Christ means. You are the Messiah. So the disciples, after eight and a half chapters, <laughs> the disciples have finally got the identity of Jesus correct. And so now the question is, and what Mark is going to do for the rest of this book, is he's going to explore what the mission of the Messiah is. So here's an absolute certainty. The result of the mission of the Messiah is going to be this. It will end with the revelation and exaltation of Jesus Christ as Messiah. That's the end, both for the disciples and for Jesus. That's how this is all going to end. It's going to end with the revelation and exaltation of Jesus as the Messiah. 
But the disciples, they have their own idea of how this will happen. They think that the ultimate goal, the exaltation of the Messiah, that that should be the way that this mission unfolds. So it should unfold with a triumphal procession led by the Messiah at the head, followed by those closest to him, leading a huge multitude in the train, ushering in the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus, Jesus has a different idea of what the Messiah's mission is and will be. So just as the disciples did not grasp Jesus's identity in the first half of the book, now the disciples will struggle to grasp what the mission of the Messiah is in the second half of this book. Look down at verse 31 in chapter 8. This is what Jesus says. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, which is another name for Jesus here, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said these things plainly to them. So Jesus' identity leads directly to the messianic mission, and the disciples are struggling with this because Jesus uses words that don't go with Messiah. Look at the words Jesus uses. He uses the word suffer, rejected, killed, rise again, suffering physical and emotional distress, brought on by difficulties, rejection, People would refuse to believe Jesus. They would actively fight against Jesus as Messiah. Killed, it means dead, no more life. Rise again, be brought back to life, resuscitated, resurrected. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has not told the disciples about this plainly. But now Jesus comes out with the end game. He he is living so that he can die at the right time in the right way. He's the Messiah, his identity is certain, and for Jesus, being the Messiah means that his mission is to die. I wanna focus on one word in Mark 8.31, and this word is what is so shocking to the disciples, and that word is must. The Son of Man must. For some leaders, religious or otherwise, there's a possibility inherent in leading a movement that something awful could happen. And if it were to happen, then a good leader prepares for those possibilities. But Jesus isn't saying this is a possibility. Jesus is saying this is the plan. The plan is to suffer and be rejected and killed and rise again. That's Jesus' mission that he reveals to the disciples. The disciples have their idea of what Jesus as Messiah should do. And Jesus says, here's the mission. Here it is. So Jesus' explanation of his mission now leads into an explanation to the disciples of what it's going to cost for their discipleship. All right, if, if the disciples had their way and Jesus led a triumphal procession. They were right behind him and he led this huge multitude of people and they ushered in the kingdom of God. That meant that their discipleship, their following Jesus would entail certain things like just going along with the flow, doing whatever Jesus said and ending up in victory. And it's all gonna be great. 
But when Jesus says the plan is to suffer, be rejected, and killed, and rise again, what does that mean for the disciples now? Well, this is, this is the question that Jesus is going to explore. All right, there's actually a bonus note in your notes that I, I inserted here, because this is the first time, this is the first time that Jesus is going to predict his passion, which is his, his death, burial, and resurrection in the book of Mark. But if you look in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and then if you look forward again in chapter 10, verse 30, or thereabouts, you're going to find out that Jesus predicts his passion two more times, almost in the same words, and the reaction is always the same. It's always the same. Okay, you got, there's four reactions under the cost of discipleship, and I'll give them to you now, but, but the, on the slides they won't come up yet, okay? So there's four things that you need to think about with the cost of discipleship. The first is that the disciples will misunderstand. The second is that Jesus Jesus offers a correction, so Jesus' correction of that misunderstanding. There's a hyperbolic reality that'll be up on the screen later so you can spell it, hyperbolic reality, hyperbole, and then it ends with an encouragement. So those four things are gonna happen in chapter eight, chapter nine, and chapter 10. So if when Nate eventually gets to chapter nine, you're gonna say, man, this sounds familiar. I thought we went through these four steps, we did. And then when he gets to chapter 10, you're gonna be like, we get it, we get it, okay? So <laughs> that's just how this is gonna go, all right? So chapter eight is the first of these predictions, then chapter nine and chapter 10 will have the same thing again. All right, but back to the explanation of the cost of discipleship. So the first thing is that the disciples misunderstand. So look at verse 32, the end of verse 32. So Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus. Uh, so I want you to take a step back for a minute, and we'll talk about Peter in just a second, but I want you to think about what the disciples just heard, that the Messiah will die. Back in 1992, uh, there was a, there's a major comic book distributor, and they decided, to, uh, they decided to venture out and change one of their long-running titles and do something different and just blow people away. This long-running comic book is Superman. After 50 years of Superman comics, DC Comics decided to offer this title for their comic book, The Death of Superman. Now, some of you have no idea about comic books and Superman, but the words death and Superman in the same sentence don't go together. <laughs> Just so you know, they don't go together. This is what the disciples heard. Messiah, death, they don't go together. How, I can't compute, Peter's going, I, I hear the words you're saying, <laughs> I know all the definitions, but Messiah and suffer, rejected, killed, and rise again don't go together at all. And so Peter, in, I mean, just in the irony of the moment, takes aside the Messiah to tell the Messiah what a Messiah should be. <laughs> the problem was that when, G when Peter confessed the identity of the Messiah, he didn't grasp the mission of the Messiah. 
So the, the disciples' Messiah should be associated with passages like this from the Old Testament. Psalm 80, verse 17. But let your hand, this is speaking to God, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Speaking of the Messiah. Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 2, 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the Messiah that the disciples are looking for. They're looking for the conquering king, the warrior who's going to defeat all the enemies and set up his kingdom on earth. And that's not the plan that Jesus gives them. So when Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, to chastise him, to set him straight, Jesus cannot let this stand. Because of Peter's misunderstanding, and Peter here is standing in for all the disciples, because look at verse 33 of chapter 8. But turning and seeing his disciples. So Peter pulls Jesus aside, rebukes him, chastises him, and then Jesus turns and sees all the disciples standing there. So Peter's rebuke has not gone unnoticed by all the disciples. So the, were the disciples all in league with Peter, or was Peter just a spokesman? Whatever it was, Jesus offers a public refutation. He's going to correct the record in front of all of them. And so what we have next is Jesus' correction. How does Jesus offer a correction? Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Same word. Peter just rebuked Jesus. Now Jesus turns and rebukes Peter, and he uses these words, get behind me, Satan. So we got to ask a question. Is this too harsh of Jesus? Is Jesus saying that Peter is possessed by, by Satan? Well, no. That's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't perform an exorcism on Peter. <laughs> he just tells Peter in a disciplinary statement to get behind me. So this leads to a ne the next question. If Peter's not possessed by Satan, in what way is Peter similar to Satan? So now we need to think in broader circles, biblical, biblical theology. We, uh, first, the, the word Satan is not a name I know we think of Satan and we, the devil, we put that name on him as, as a name. Like my name is Andy. The devil's name is Satan. But that's not, that's not the way the word is used in the Bible. Satan is actually a title. It's a description of, what's, of what the devil is, and he's an adversary. So Satan just means adversary. <clears throat> so when Jesus descriptively labels Peter. <clears throat> he says to Peter, get out of the way, you adversary. You're opposing me. So Peter is acting like the adversary in this situation. So then this leads to a third question. Why use the title Satan at all for Peter when Jesus could have used any other number of words or phrases or titles? So there is an association of Peter's statement with, with Satan, the devil. So look back at Mark 1, 
12 and 13. will be on the screens too. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, speaking of Jesus, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by the adversary, by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus has already been tempted by Satan in his earthly ministry. We know the temptations he faced from Matthew chapter 4. He was tempted to feed himself by turning rocks into bread. He was tempted to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple and let the angels catch him. He was tempted to bow at the devil's feet to receive the kingdoms of the world. Now, if you're thinking, wow, those are pretty lame. You're kind of (laughs) right. Hey, can you turn stones into bread? Uh, What's the temptation exactly? Of course Jesus can. What's the temptation? It, are you really going to take a flying run off the t- top of the temple? Well, that's not really tempting. Okay, so what, what is tempting? All right, so on, on the screen there, Matthew chapter 4, look at the way that, that uh, Matthew phrases this. What is enticing or what is the actual temptation? So the, Matthew 4, 3, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 5 and 6, Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Yes, absolutely. He has every right to do what the devil is suggesting. He has every right to turn stones into bread. He has every right to jump off the temple and have the angels catch him. He is the Son of God. The temptation is not the performance of the acts. The temptation is to act according to his own will outside of the will of the Father, outside the plan of the Father. The Father had set a time and place for the revelation and exaltation of Jesus as the Son of God, and in the desert turning rocks to bread, or jumping off the temple and displaying angelic intervention, that is not the time that the Father had set. The real temptation was to achieve God-ordained ends by wrong means. Okay? Jesus is to be revealed as the Son of God. The temptation was to achieve God-ordained ends by the wrong means. The third temptation, though, of Jesus is not framed that way. The implication is the same, though. Jesus has every right to the kingdoms of the earth. He will one day rule and reign over the entire world. But the means to that God-ordained end is not by worshiping the devil. The devil is offering a shortcut to the inevitable end, a quick and painless resolution. The temptation is to achieve God-ordained ends by wrong means. Back to our passage in Mark, though, we need to look at the continuation of Jesus' rebuke to Peter to see, to complete what temptation really is. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Since Jesus just labeled Peter in the same camp as Satan, the adversary, we should expect the verse to end with, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of the devil. But Jesus ends his statement with a rebuke to man. 
Temptation then is to achieve God-ordained ends by man-designed means. So let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Now it sounds eerily familiar. Why were Adam and Eve tempted by the fruit in the garden? Ever think about that? Why were they tempted? Were they hungry? No. They had all. They had all. They wanted to eat. Was it that this fruit was so beautiful that they couldn't pass it up? No. There was plenty of beautiful fruit. It was all very good. So then what was it? Genesis 3, 4, and 5 tell us that the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil offered to Adam and Eve a way to shortcut the process of becoming like God. Now, this Pastor Luke is going to Utah. I am not espousing Mormon theology. You cannot become God, okay? But Adam and Eve were offered a chance to become like God. How were they to become like God? They were offered the opportunity to decide for themselves what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. Now, if you know your Bible, Genesis 3 is preceded by Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1, the only two other chapters in the Bible at that point. <laughs> Who had decided what was good and bad in those chapters? God had. Who had told Adam that it was not good to eat of the tree? God had. <laughs> Up to that point, only God had made those decisions. He was the judge of what was acceptable or not acceptable, and he shared that with Adam and Eve. If they had continued to follow God in obedience, presumably, he would have continued to re reveal his wisdom and understanding and judgments concerning everything, and they could have, over time, learned all that he chose to share with them, just as he has done with the Scriptures. He is, we have the mind of God in the Scriptures. Instead, the devil offers to them the ability to be self-determining in Genesis 3. He offers them the chance to be like God, knowing, discerning, or judging good and evil for themselves. And that is what Adam and Eve were tempted with and what they succumbed to. They sought to achieve God-ordained ends by man-designed means. And man has been tempted this way ever since. So back to our passage. What are the man-designed means that Peter is advocating? The rebuke Peter was giving to Jesus was to disapprove of Jesus' prediction of his suffering, of his rejection, of his death. And obviously, if he didn't die, there would be no need for a resurrection. So Peter is saying, no, that's not how the Messiah is to reach exaltation. There is another way. One that does not include suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. And Jesus recognizes the sin-filthy fingerprints all over this temptation. Peter is thinking like a sinful man, and sinful man always opposes God at every moment. Sin-motivated man is an adversary of God. But Peter's rebuke of Jesus was not a private matter. He did it in front of all the disciples. So when we see Jesus' response, Jesus sets the example with Peter for all his disciples. 
So Peter is not satanic, as in demon-possessed or devil-possessed, but Peter's rebuke comes from a sinful nature that aligns with the adversary's endgame to distract and tempt Jesus from fulfilling the suffering and dying messiahship. So Jesus strongly corrects Peter to establish the divine mission is correct. So this leads to some of Jesus' wildest statements in all of this passage. So look at his next statements. Calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. These things are meant as hyperbole, okay? Hyperbole is just an exaggerated statement or a comparison not meant to be taken literally, but used to make a point. So here's the hyperbolic reality that Jesus is pointing to. Now, you think this, you hear this kind of language, hyperbole, and you think, well, where do we use that in, in our everyday speech? Or how do, we, how do we speak like that? So if you think some of the phrases you probably use all the time, like, uh, I thought I would die of embarrassment. Are you literally going to die? Well, no. Or I'm dying of laughter. Are you literally going to die? No. Or uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite ones, which is, that baby's so cute I could just eat him up. <laughs> yeah, so cuteness is now a motivation for cannibalism. All right. Uh, no, no, of course not. They're not to be taken literally. <laughs> really. So what, do, what hyperbole does Jesus use? Discipleship means three things in verse 34, all right? To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus. We're all like, that's, that's good. Those don't seem that crazy. But we lose the, the effect of the words because we live today. We know the end of the story. We've read the scriptures. We've probably heard preaching on this before, and we lose the shock value of it. Crucifixion was a torturous method of execution. Not only that, it was a shameful way to die. So is Jesus saying literally to pick up a cross and drag it around after Jesus? Or the first statement, let him deny himself. Does it mean literally to not eat or drink or wear appropriate clothing or to live in a house? Or the, the last one, or follow me. Does it literally mean to walk single file behind Jesus around the countryside? Because if it does, we're 2,000 years too late for that one. So Jesus is not talking about these things literally. He's using hyperbole to illustrate what discipleship is going to cost. So let's look at command number one, which is deny yourself. Deny himself. This is not asceticism or self-discipline. It's, it's actually worse than that. It means not to deny something, but it means to deny someone, yourself. You forfeit the right to determine for yourself what is best for you. And not just in one area of life, but in all areas of life. You deny self. And you do this by dying to self, and you die to sin. So the difference between someone dead and someone alive? Dead people don't respond to stimuli. So if you have died to self, if you're denying self, when your own self desires chocolate and says, hey, that candy bar looks good, let's steal it, 
you no longer respond to that stimulus because you're dead to self and to sin. That's what deny yourself means. Command number two, to take up his cross. This speaks about how to accomplish, how to accomplish the first command to deny himself. So to walk through a place at that time carrying a cross would have been a mark of death. If you dragged a cross through the marketplace, people would know that you were on your way to execution. So here in using hyperbole, Jesus is saying your life should be characterized by a continual awareness of death to self. Sometimes you've probably heard this mischaracterized by someone saying about a difficult situation or a difficult person, well, that's just my cross to bear. Jesus is not talking about sickness or disease or difficult people here. He's talking about getting up each day and realizing that the greatest deterrent that keeps you from God is you. And then determining to live in such a way that your natural self is dying each moment. Command number three is follow me. It, it just builds off deny yourself, take up your cross, and now follow me. It's whole life discipleship. Now, I said we can't literally walk around after Jesus, but we can adhere to his commands. We can order our priorities according to his priorities. We can speak as he has outlined. And this required, and this requires, denying oneself by dying to self so that you can live like and for Jesus. Acts 11.26 tells us that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You say, well, people call us Christians all the time. But that was the first time. And what it was used as, these disciples in Antioch were living like little Christ. People saw them and said, they're living just like Christ would live. That's what follow me is. It's whole life discipleship. So when somebody looks at you and someone looks at me, they don't see you and me. They see Jesus Christ. And that takes denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. So following these three commands, then Jesus says something that seems out of place or contradictory. If you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus, you'll save it. If you try to continue to choose your own manner and way of living, you try to order your own priorities according to what you have decided for yourself to be right and wrong, then your effort is all for nothing. You know what they call the guy who dies with the most accomplishments, money and glory? Dead. The Egyptian pharaohs built these huge tombs, the pyramids, and they stuffed them full of stuff, wealth and weapons, even sometimes their warriors and their wives. And when they finally opened the pyramids, guess what they found? All the stuff and the mummified remains of the pharaoh. <laughs> Paul speaks of this antithesis this way. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Romans 5, 8, 6, and 13. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Messiah must die. Now, he's going to die literally and physically, and his disciples should not expect anything less. But his disciples are only going to die spiritually, and they, they die to sin and self. Followers of Jesus must deny themselves through dying to their own natural desires and conversely ordering their thoughts, deeds, and words according to Jesus. Jesus continues the hyperbole, gaining the whole world, gaining the bottom line, gaining the profit margin, what is that compared to our eternal soul? Jesus is contrasting the things that can be sensed in the here and now with the things that are outside the realm of present experience. What if, just for a second, what if you could not just have one of the things, but you could have all of the things? I mean, you could have all of it. What's more valuable? All the things or your soul? So instead, the disciples must take their stand now with the mission of the Messiah, which is to suffer, be rejected, killed, and raised again. Because the crucified Messiah will one day be the risen and ascended Messiah, exalted to the glory, to glory with the Father. Jesus says that in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So now is when you have to identify with Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> the boys and I like to watch soccer highlights, and so we'll look up uh, English Premier League, and we'll be watching the highlights. And inevitably, uh, one of the girls will plop down next to us and start watching the highlights. And there's one girl who she always chooses a side to root for, but she always waits until somebody scores a goal or one team's really far ahead. <laughs> she just hops on the bandwagon when she knows the outcome's inevitable, and that's the team she roots for. We all want to be on the winning side when they're winning. <laughs> but Jesus says, now, now is the time for real discipleship. In this sinful and adulterous generation, at your job, among your unsaved, unbelieving family members, in your school, teens, around your peer group, in our conversations, in our marriage, in our solitude. If you and I are ashamed of Jesus, we're too embarrassed to live like a disciple, to be seen as associated with Jesus, can I just be blunt with you, which is Jesus is being blunt with us. What do you expect Jesus to do when he comes back? And you and I have lived our lives ashamed of him. What do you expect him to do? 
he'll confirm that you and I truly had no association with him. And that, that is a disastrous end. Jesus says, now is the time for discipleship. Now is the time to be associated with the rejected, suffering, to be killed Messiah. What is physical death compared to the prospect of eternal damnation when the Messiah returns? Now that's heavy. But Jesus ends with an encouragement here to his disciples and an encouragement to us. The end seems a long way off. The revelation and exaltation of Jesus seems a long way off. It did in the first century. It feels that way today. (laughs) So what's the encouragement? Jesus reminds the disciples the coming of the kingdom and glory and power was imminent. That means it's present. It's, It's about to happen. In fact, Jesus standing there was proof that the kingdom was real. Some of the disciples would even glimpse a revelation of this kingdom, but not permanently. They would just glimpse it for a moment. So think back to Mark 1.15. Jesus' first words were, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' parables about the kingdom of God They amounted to this. Don't be fooled by what it looks like right now. It's like a seed that's planted and it grows without the planter's direction. Or it's like a mustard seed, which is tiny, but it will someday grow into a large bush. So so with the Messiah, don't be fooled by a Messiah who suffers, is rejected, is killed, and rises again. His identity as Messiah is his mission as Messiah. This is the way to achieve the God-ordained end for the ultimate recognition and exaltation of the Messiah. So here's Jesus' encouragement. There are some from among the hearers who will see, if even for a brief moment, the exalted Messiah in their lifetime. We'll see that probably next week in the transfiguration. That's not an encouragement. You think, well, we don't get to see that, so how's that encouraging for us, okay? (laughs) Our encouragement is because we have the completed Scripture, we know and are even more sure of the future recognition and exaltation of Jesus. That's what Peter tells us. We have a more sure word than even personal experience. We know that though Jesus suffered, And though he was rejected, and though he was killed, that he did rise again and is even now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's our encouragement. That Jesus, on his way to the crucifixion, is not the end of the story. His death is not the end of the story. And our encouragement is that we have all of the story. Jesus' identity is his mission. The two are one. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was not a rabbit trail because of divine miscalculation. It was the plan all along. And if that was the plan for Jesus, we will do well to pay close attention to what he calls his disciples to do.
Now, what can we learn from this? Number one, first, we want to be careful that we view Jesus as he really is and not who we want him to be. There's times when we will speak of Jesus as if he's just Santa Claus or he's a caring grandfather in the sky who will give me everything I want if I just ask. Hear the words of Jesus again. He was to be killed. He was to suffer. He was to be rejected. If that was the path for your Savior, can you expect anything less? Don't miss who Jesus really is for who we want Jesus to be. Second then, do I take seriously my responsibility as a disciple? What is that responsibility? It's to follow Jesus to death. Death of myself, death of death to sin. Am I willing to sacrifice all of that so that I can know Christ? Because if I'm not willing to do that, then what do you expect? What do I expect when Christ returns? Third, lastly, am I willing to be known? Am I willing to be associated with Jesus in face of the opposition all around me? Adults, men and women who uh, are in workplaces, you can be confronted with opportunities to lie, be confronted with speaking in a way that would distance yourself from Christ, either by the words you use or by the material that you talk about, or even when they ask you, hey, how was your weekend? And you say, oh, fine. (laughs) Instead of taking the opportunity to say, I had a great time at church. Let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) Teens, peer pressure is a real thing. You'll be in a group of guys. You'll be in a group of girls. You'll be online. You'll be on your cell phone. The opportunities are endless for you to disassociate yourself with those crazy religious people at church by the way that you talk, by the material that you speak about, by the words you use. Now is the day to walk in discipleship. For those of us who are married, your spouse, your spouse is a great barometer of how you're doing. Ask them and encourage them. Parents to kids, we have a great opportunity. Those who are single, you have a, you have a, 
opportunities with friends that would never talk to a married adult, or they don't, they're feeling lonely. You have, you have great opportunities to step into a conversation and share Jesus with those around you. Are, you. are we willing to be associated with Jesus in the face of the opposition that is all around us every day? May God grant us his spirit so that we can obey him in this area. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son for his obedience in walking faithfully before you. As we consider our own lives and our own hearts in, the, in these matters, Lord, would you grant us clear sight you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us today. That we wouldn't take the opportunity to hear your word and to walk away unchanged. Would you encourage those here who are seeking to walk and follow you, walk a path of discipleship? Would you help other believers this morning to be the body to encourage each other even as we have through singing and through reading scripture together and praying together would you lift up those who need you this morning for those who don't know Jesus as their savior Lord would you open the eyes of their heart that they might come face to face with a, a Messiah who would go to the cross for them, would die for them, would suffer for them in their place, for their sins. Today, would you open their eyes and ears to salvation? They would call upon your name and be saved. Father, would you grant us again your spirit to work through your word so that we might honor you and live like Jesus where you've called us today. In the name of the one who suffered and was rejected and killed and rose again. In Jesus' name we pray.